Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you've ever been into the thing that is often called world music, or especially if you were around in the late 80s or early 90s, you would have undoubtedly been exposed to people like the famous Qawwali singer Nusrat Fatili Khan. He is a very good example of what is often termed Sufi music. And while many have heard this kind of music before, few are aware of its history, development and its use in mystical practices. We have arrived at one of my main fields of study and interest, so let's talk about the music of the Sufis. We've already explored the general history and development of music in the Islamic world in previous episodes, a deep and highly developed tradition of diverse forms and expressions. And one of the most important and central factors in the development and maintenance of Islamic music have been the Sufis, the Muslims who have heavily emphasized practices of inner purification, known as tasawwuf, to reach intimacy with God, what is often termed Islamic mysticism. Through their frequent use of music as an important part of these practices, Sufis have both legitimized and helped carry forward music in the Islamic world in ways that still inspire today. Many of us have of course seen and perhaps even experienced the famous whirling dervishes of the Mevlevi order, which is a particular form of expression of the music-infused Sufi rituals that have been so central to its history. When we talk about Sufi music as such, we are usually talking specifically about the devotional practice called Samah, an Arabic word that literally means audition or listening, and in which Sufis in history and today have engaged in listening to poetry or music as an essential spiritual practice, sometimes often involving movements of the body or dance broadly defined. In this episode, we will be defining Sufi music a little more broadly. The practice and ritual-oriented music will be the bulk of the discussion, of course, but we will also include more contemporary art music that includes um, Sufi themes as part of this wider category of Sufi music. 
In any case, Sufism, or tasawwuf in Arabic, is a word that is used broadly to refer to all kinds of Islamic mysticism today, even if it was originally used to denote a specific group of renunciants in 9th and 10th century Baghdad. And this more broad use of the word is what we will be employing in this episode as well. We'll leave a more complex discussion about the varieties of early Islamic mysticism for a future episode. But from the very earliest period of Sufism and Islam generally, music was being used as an important practice for spiritual development. Aside from the regular practices and rituals that all Muslims performed, like the daily prayers, etc., Sufis developed further ways to deepen their relationship to the Quranic message, the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, and with God. The most universal of these practices is that one will gather for hadra, or literally gathering, and perform dhikr, or remembrance. In dhikr, Sufis will often chant the Islamic proclamation of faith, la ilaha illallah, or the different names of God in a repeated fashion and often for long periods of time. This chanting can sometimes be accompanied by percussion instruments, so thus you can see that the lines between this dhikr and that other kind of ritual, sama'ah, aren't always crystal clear. What is clear is that sama, or audition, the act of listening as an important spiritual practice, was present from the earliest days of Sufism. In the circle of Baghdad, the original Sufis, so to say, led by important figures like Junaid and Abul Hussein and Nuri, we know that these ecstatic musical gatherings took place, as well as in other places around the Islamic world. Also, even earlier in history, in the 8th century, in the very earliest periods, this kind of practice seems to have been very common. Sama'ah, as opposed to regular dhikr, was based around the power of auditory experience. It has almost always revolved primarily around the melodic recitation of devotional poetry, but has often been accompanied by musical instruments of various sorts. In sessions of sama'ah, the practitioners will also sometimes induce movements of the body to increase its effects. Now, important to remember here is that while Sama'a has been an important and widespread practice in the history of Sufism, not all Sufis partake in it. There have been many Sufis in history that have been very critical of Sama'a, or listening to music in various forms, criticizing it as a corruption that has no place in the religion, while others have seen it as an essential part of spiritual practices. In later periods, when Sufism developed into the different orders, there were some orders that placed a major emphasis on Sama' and music, like the Mevlevi order or the Chishtiya, uh, while other orders are much more reluctant to use it, like the Naqshbandiya, for example. We'll return to this topic a little bit later, but we should remember that Sufism, just like Islam generally, is diverse, and there's a multitude and diversity of opinions and attitudes towards the devotional listening to music. But from the earliest days of its development and until today, Sama'a in its various forms have been a very popular and important part of Sufi practices. And there are two different ways in which one can view the power and meaning of this ritual. Number one, the practical side, that is how Sama'a is performed and what effect it has on the practitioner. And number two, the theoretical side, that is how do the Sufis imagine that music and sound and its effects can be placed within a metaphysical and cosmological framework. We will explore both of these perspectives to fully understand the vast topic of Sufi music. Now, some of you may be thinking, 
hold on, Philip, doesn't Islam forbid music? It is true that many Muslims in history and today have considered music forbidden. That you know, it's not something that cannot be denied, of course. But what is also true is that many others have considered completely permissible and in various circumstances. Now, for a more full discussion about the legal status of music in the Islamic world and the Islamic religion, I suggest you watch some of my earlier episodes about music in the Islamic world, because I cover that topic more deeply there. But many of the Sufis certainly didn't consider it forbidden, especially not when it was used for religious purposes and in order to help the practitioner strengthen his relationship to God. This is why we see some of the most important early Sufi writers like Saraj, Abu Talib al-Makki, and Qushayri defending the practice of listening to music in Sufi gatherings. And this also gives us a good look into the way that Sama was practiced and conceptualized in early Sufism. In his very significant Risalat al-Qushayriya fi ilm al-Tasawwuf, the epistle of Qushayri on the science of Sufism, the scholar Abu al-Qasim al-Qushayri writes that, quote, Know that listening to music is permissible when it means the perception of beautiful sounds and pleasant melodies, when the listener does not intend anything that is prohibited, when he does not listen to anything that is condemned by the divine law, when he allows no free rein to his passions and is not seduced by the amusement that resides in it. And that, quote, they, the Sufis, say, listening to music is a delicious nourishment for the spirits of divine Gnostics. Abu Nasir al-Saraj argues in his Kitab al-Lumah fi tasawwuf that, quote, the Prophet said wisdom is sometimes to be found in poetry. Since poetry may be recited, there is no objection to reciting it with musical notes and melodies and with an agreeable intonation. Various divines and lawyers have pronounced in favor of audition, for example Malik ibn Anas. It is well known that Malik and the people of Medina did not dislike audition. Shafi'i was of the same opinion. And we find similar arguments in other formative works of Sufism, like Abu Talib al-Makki's Qut al-Qulub and the works of As-Sulami. What these Sufi writers were trying to do was not only to argue for its total compatibility with Islam and its law by showing through hadith reports how the Prophet and his companions approved of Sama, or that most of the founders of the law schools didn't consider music prohibited as such, but also to show in what way the Sama was an essential, sometimes even necessary part of mystical practice and the path to spiritual realization, as well as what rules were required for it to be considered legitimate. From these writers, as well as other sources, we get an idea of the power and purpose of Sama sessions. We hear stories of various Sufis like Dhul Nun al-Misri, Abu Suleiman al-Darani and others, and how they would fall into bouts of ecstasy, faint, and other very dramatic things as a result of hearing beautiful sounds and melodies. Quote, a group of Sufis used to gather at the house of Al-Hassan al-Qasas. They were accompanied by singers whose singing made them ecstatic. Or, even more dramatically, quote, Ahmed ibn Muqatil al-Aki related, When Dhul Nur al-Misri entered Baghdad, local Sufis gathered around him. Among them was a singer. The Sufis asked Dhul Nur's permission to have him, the singer, perform something for them. He gave them his permission, and the singer began to recite. He recites uh, some lines of poetry. And on hearing this, Dhul Nur stood up and fell on his face, blood streaming from his forehead onto the ground. Then one of the Sufis also stood up and displayed ecstatic behavior. As already mentioned, and as the name suggests, Sama revolves around listening. In these sessions, one would listen to beautiful words or melodies. It could be as simple as the recitation of the Quran, but more often it involved devotional Sufi poetry. Poetry praising the Prophet Muhammad or talking about one's love or intimacy with God. 
This experience of listening was further enhanced by the accompaniment of musical instruments of varying sorts, as well as different forms of dancing. Jean During defined it as such, quote, Sama, which literally means audition, denotes in the Sufi tradition spiritual listening, and more particularly, listening to music with the aim of reaching a state of grace or ecstasy, or more simply, with the aim of meditating, of plunging into oneself, or as the Sufis say, to nourish the soul. It thus operates in a mystical concert of spiritual listening to music and songs, in a more or less ritualized form. This act of listening is thought to help the practitioner evolve spiritually, and in the most exalted situations, help him or her enter a state of spiritual ecstasy, or perhaps even union with God. I think we've all experienced the incredible power that music can have on our emotions. We've heard music that can make us sad, music that makes us happy, that makes us contemplative. Uh, some of us maybe have even experienced music that can take us completely out of our regular awareness or consciousness and take us to some other, sometimes even ecstatic state. This power of music was not lost on people in, in the ancient times or in medieval times, including, of course, the Muslims. This is why the Sufis saw it as such an uh, important and useful tool for spiritual development, and of course also why the enemies of music saw it as such a danger to society and to people. It was a very good tool for helping the practitioner enter the state of wajd, or ecstasy, to help orient the heart towards God consciousness and, to some, even induce the highest form of spiritual experience and union. Again, in the epistle of Qushayri, quote, Someone inquired of Abu Yaqub and Nahrajuri about listening to music. He answered, This is a state that brings about the return to the divine mysteries through the burning of one's self. Beautiful music, and possibly the words of poetry that accompanies it, can move you towards and induce the state of self-annihilation, or fana, so sought after by Sufis, a state when the ego becomes effaced in the reality of God, who is realized to be the only thing existing. In the earliest period, the practice of samah does not seem to have been as structured or ritualized as it would become in later periods. We do know that gatherings took place, as I just described, but not so much about what they would have been like. As mentioned, we know that the early Sufis would gather formally and take part in musical auditions, and many sources suggest that both men and women were involved and that sometimes even women could lead these sessions. And sama, as such, could also be a very spontaneous thing. It didn't have to be in a ritualized setting to have effects. There are many stories of Sufis who are just walking along the street and suddenly hear a beautiful sound, um, maybe someone singing or reciting verses of poetry, and immediately just following into an ecstatic state, sometimes fainting in very dramatic such things. Kenneth S. Avery writes, quote, a chance hearing of words, song or poetry in a crowded place, the cry of a street vendor or a misheard sound or utterance could also act as a powerful trigger for altered state experiences. These ecstatic states, or awhal, of ecstasy, wajd, was also often associated with certain behaviors, as you can tell. The stories about Sufis ripping their clothes, yelling and fainting showcase how powerful these altered states could be. This was another controversial point, and there were often variations of opinions about how one should approach them. Sometimes scholars have talked about a sober kind of Sufism, associated with figures like Junaid and later Al-Ghazali, and a quote-unquote intoxicated form of Sufism, more associated with figures like Abu Yazid al-Bistami and Halaj. While this dichotomy is somewhat simplifying, it does hint at the different attitudes. 
To some, the extreme altered states and experiences should be accompanied by an outer sobriety, where one controls one's actions and speech while being completely transformed on the inside. Others were more allowing of outer expressions of ecstasy. Very famously, Sufis have been attributed with ecstatic utterances, known as shat, while in altered states as a result of sama. Perhaps most famously is the story about Al-Halaj, who is said to have uttered the phrase Ana al-Haq, or I am the truth, and Bistami, who is quoted as exclaiming Subhani, glory be to me. When we read contemporary and later writings about these utterances, we often see the Sufis having an apologetic tone. These are utterances of ineffable secrets, and the person cannot be judged based on their actions when in a heightened state. Many were concerned about such utterances at the same time, though, not so much because what was said by these mystics was wrong per se, but because they divulged publicly secrets that should only be kept within a confined setting of mystical company. As we get into the later Middle Ages, and as Sufism becomes increasingly widespread and popular, as well as more institutionalized, we get more writings to which we can study and understand how Sama was practiced and the different attitudes towards it. And one conclusion we have to draw based on those sources is that Sama continued to be a very widespread and popular practice among the various Sufis in different regions of the Islamic world. We have more references to music from this time, both in some of the great examples of Sufi poetry, but also in more scholastic works. With the writings of the monumental scholar Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, in particular his Ihya ul-Lumuddin, the revival of the religious sciences, as well as other developments at the time, Sufism became more widely accepted as part of a normative mainstream Islam. In the Ihya' al-Lumuddin, Ghazali not only creates a kind of theoretical synthesis of Sufism, Ash'ari theology, and Islamic law, which became paradigmatic, he also presents us with a passionate and comprehensive defense of music and Sama in particular. He presents arguments similar to his predecessors that we have already talked about, but he is even more systematic and presents theological arguments of his own to support his claims. For example, he famously gives us the phrase, quote, whoever says that all music is prohibited, let him also claim that the songs of birds are prohibited. Beautiful sounds and melodies are not a problem in themselves. If so, then all beauty should be, as he indicates here. Instead, it is about the context in which it is experienced. Ghazali limits the kinds of instruments that are allowed to be used in sama sessions, only including those that are not associated with things like alcohol drinking and taverns, but in general he is a great defender of sama and music as beneficial to the Muslims who travel on the spiritual path. But not everyone agreed with him. Perhaps surprising to some of you, the great Andalusian Sufi master Ibn Arabi was not a fan of sama at all, and he condemns the practice in his great work Al-Futuhat al-Makiyah. He says, quote, they practice sama as if it was an exercise in devotion and piety, but in fact they are just people who take religion as a joke and a game, taking advantage of beardless youths to further their perverse intentions and villainy. The practice really only serves to satisfy the appetite of the senses, in spite of the fact that from a legal point of view it is a perfectly acceptable activity. 
pretty harsh words. To Ibn Arabi, this was not proper behavior for a Gnostic, even though he seems to indicate that music in itself isn't necessarily a problem according to Islamic law, he sees it as completely inappropriate as a religious Sufi practice. And this is just to show you that there's a diversity of opinions uh, within Sufism as well. Even a great and one of the most famous Sufi personalities and thinkers of all time, Ibn Arabi, was very critical and strongly against this practice. But he was probably not in the majority at the time, as we see how Sama remains a very popular practice, being praised in most Sufi poetry and writings at the time. One of the greatest Arabic Sufi poets of all time, Ibn al-Farid, is said to have been a frequent participant in mystical gatherings of music and dance. But one story also tells of how he spontaneously entered an ecstatic state while in a marketplace. Quote, a group of guards passed by Ibn al-Farid while they were beating clappers and singing. Upon hearing these verses, Ibn al-Farid shouted out and danced in the marketplace. This attracted a large crowd of people, many of whom fell to the ground in ecstasy as the guards continued to sing. Another writer recalls how a spiritual session of Sama' wasn't considered complete unless Ibn al-Farid attended. And in his own poetry, he offers many praises and descriptions of the beauty and transformative experiences that are had while in Sama'. In perhaps his most famous poem, the huge Attai al-Kubra, the ode rhyming in the letter Ta, also known as Nazma Suluk, the poem of the Sufi way, he offers an absolutely beautiful description of the power of spiritual audition, where he compares it to a mother singing lullabies to her infant. Quote, when the infant moans from the tight swaddling wrap and restlessly yearns for relief from distress, he is soothed by lullabies and lays aside the burden that covered him. He listens silently to one who soothes him. The sweet speech makes him forget his bitter state and remember a secret whisper of ancient ages. His state makes clear the conditions of audition, sama, and confirms the dance to be free from error. For when he burns with desire from lullabies, anxious to fly to his first abodes, he is calmed by his rocking cradle as the hands of the nurse gently sway it. I have found in gripping rapture when she is recalled in the chanter's tones and the singer's tunes. What a suffering man feels when he gives up his soul, when the messengers of death come to take him. One finding pain in being driven asunder is like one pained in rapture yearning for friends. The soul pitied the body where it first appeared, and my spirit rose to its high beginnings. My spirit soared past the gates opening to beyond my union, where there is no veil of communion. Ibn al-Farid alludes to the spirit's longing to return to his source in God, the lullaby representing the beauty of the music that reminds the soul of his origins and increases his desire for reunion. As the nurse gently sways him, that is, as the Sufi sways his body to the music, and the singers chant the name of God, the mystic experiences a spiritual death where the spirit can soar to a state beyond all duality, even, as he says, beyond union of lover and beloved, mystic and god. Similarly, the Andalusian Arabic Sufi poet Abu al-Hassan al-Shushtari gave major importance to music and songs in his mystical practice. Many of his poems, in the form of zajal, were songs meant to be sung. Stories tell of how Shushtari would go to the markets with his companions and sing his songs, possibly with instrumental accompaniment, to the regular people in ecstatic sessions. Quote, when I went towards my objects and listened to the music, my misery became glory and my poverty riches. 
or caught O oh, Faqi, if you would but taste it and listen to the melodies in the Sufi gatherings. You would give up this world and everything in it and live love-crazed until the day you die. Indeed, echoing the point made by Ghazali earlier, Shushtari explains in his Risalat al-Baghdadiyya how all forms of listening can be a devotional act, whether it is in the music of Sufi gatherings or in the singing of birds. Quote, Listening, sama is veneration. Speech is veneration as long as what is said is good. Sensory experience is veneration, all five senses. To Shushtari, God can be experienced everywhere at all times, and the perfect devotee is the person who turns every act and sensory experience into an act of devotion or prayer. In all beautiful sounds, one can experience the presence of God. The ritualized practice of Sufi Sama in this context becomes like a supercharged way of audition, an audition that can happen at any time at any place. At around this time, in the 12th and 13th centuries, we see the significant development of the Sufi orders, a further institutionalization of Sufism into various tariqas, or tariqat in plural, centered often around the teachings of a single founder. As we will see, some of these orders would implement sama and music as central parts of their identity, while others would exclude it completely. And these characteristic forms and expressions of Sufi music that developed in these orders in particular often survives until today. Perhaps none is more famous in this regard than the Persian Sufi poet Jalal ad-Din Rumi and the Mevlevia or Mevlevi order that was founded based on him. Not only is his most famous poem, The Song of the Reed, a direct reference to Sama, and we'll return to this poem a little bit later, but it is also said that Rumi was a Rabab player himself, and his life involves various stories that showcase his great love for music and Sama. In one, it is said that when his spiritual master, Shams At-Tabrizi, suddenly disappeared, Rumi would start to whirl in an ecstatic dance. In another story, it is told, quote, Once our master Jalal din said this, Music is the creaking of the gates of paradise. Whereupon one of the stupid idiots remarked, I do not like the sound of creaking gates. And Mevlana, that is Rumi, answered, You hear the doors when they are being closed, but I, I hear them when they are opening. Many anecdotes and stories like this show how greatly Rumi loved music and its powerful effects. Quote, Sama was an activity for the true men of God, which liberated Rumi from the austere ways of self-renunciation and gave him a joyous vehicle for expressing his mystical rapture. Rumi's close connection to music can be seen in the characteristic practices of the Mevlevi order that he founded, or was founded based on him. It is this order that later developed the very recognizable form of Sama, where the practitioners whirled in a similar fashion to stories about the master himself. This has become known as the whirling dervishes, and is a complex and developed ritual involving musical suites of several parts and compositions. This whirling is another example of the kind of dancing movements that often accompanied musical sessions from the earliest periods and is thought to help the dervish enter a state of transcendence and a loss of self to be united with God. Today one will often explain how the whirling is the most natural movement of the universe, the galaxies revolve in spinning motions, the atoms do the same as do the planets around the sun. Of course Rumi wouldn't have known these scientific facts himself at the time, but whirling was seen as important on a symbolic level as such. A later writer describes the meanings of the particular Sama practiced by Rumi and the Mevlevis at the time. Quote, 
All the movements emanating from mystics during the Sama symbolize a point or a truth. For instance, whirling is a sign of unity, and this is a station of saints who stand in that station, see the beloved and the desired everywhere and in all directions, and the attained divine grace wherever they turn. To jump and to stamp the foot denote two things. The first one denotes the joy of connecting with the spiritual world. To stamp the foot denotes that the Sufi, in that position, subordinates his self, and with that strength he treads upon everything except God. Opening the arms denotes several things. The first is related to the joy of the honor of attainment and to the conferral of the degree of perfection. Secondly, it is a victory over the army of inordinate appetites of the self and the greatest holy war, jihad, consists of defeating these. And that's one of the fascinating things about Sufi music. We can see how it is practiced in all parts of the Islamic world by Sufis in all these different regions. But depending on the region, um, sometimes even depending on the very order, these musical rituals can take very different forms. So the whirling dervishes is very characteristically from the Mevlevi order. And the music employed often takes on a very, you can say, Ottoman Turkish tone because it developed in that kind of region. As another example, if we move further to the east, to places like India or the Indian subcontinent generally, we see Sufi music and Sufi rituals that develop in a very characteristic style different from other regions as well. In the Chishti order, which has been one of the most popular in this region, Sama and music came to play a major role. Some of the most significant masters of this order, like Nizamuddin Awliya, were great advocates of Sama and frequently practiced it. One of his own students, the Sufi poet and musical composer Amir Khusro, is one of the most significant in this regard. He and others like him developed forms of Sufi music that was unique to this region and had very strong flavors of Indian music culture. Genres like Qawwali came about in this context, which today has been made so famous by figures like Nusrat Fatali Khan. <laughs> In North Africa, we also see how the music has a characteristic flavor, often being a combination of Arabic and Amazigh or Berber traditions of music. Here there is usually a predominance of percussion instruments and group chanting, but of course there's diversity too. Even in instrumentation, we can see differences in the regions of course, because in different regions different, different instruments were used. So in India we see instruments like the harmonium today being used, and uh, the uh, you know, tabla drums and the tampura perhaps. In, in the Mevlevi order we see instruments like the ouds and instruments that are very prominent in Turkish and Anatolian music. In North Africa we have other instruments that are used that are more frequently used in that particular region and the music of that region too. So as we can see, Sufi music developed in different ways and took different expressions, but the purpose and theory behind it always remained the same. To be an aid and important practice for mystical initiates to advance on the spiritual path and eventually reach the state of full God-remembrance and self-annihilation through ecstasy. Discussions have continued about the permissibility and appropriateness of this ritual, this practice, as well as in what context and what forms it should be allowed, if at all. Some of the earliest writers, like uh, Junaid, for example, in Baghdad, is said to have counted three 
uh, you could say requirements for a sama sessions to be legitimate uh, the right place the right time and the right company but we can also see a diversity in attitudes about these various rules and what is required for it to be permissible by thinkers across history having different opinions it's all very diverse and there's always differing opinions and people from different sides arguing about all of these different questions. To some, like the very significant North African Sufi Abu Madian, Sama was a restricted practice. He approved of it, but only behind closed doors and in the company of advanced Sufis. In the Bidayat al-Murid, he writes that, quote, As for the session of audition, or Sama, it constitutes correct behavior, a point which no one doubts except the ignorant. It is the method of the saints and the pious. Audition is a private thing. No one but its folk should know about it. When Sufis are present for ecstatic sessions, they should lock the doors of their homes, and when the food is brought, they should open them again. One also sometimes argued that Sama was only something that was performed as a step on the way to the higher station of mystical development, but once one had reached those higher stations, one no longer needed it and it could be discarded, basically. Quote, Sama relates to the spiritual progress of a Muslim mystic or Sufi adept in one of three ways. One, it may be totally excluded as inappropriate to Islamic teaching, mystical or non-mystical, as the Mughal Sheikh Ahmed Sirhindi and his suborder, the Mujadidiyah Naqshbandiyah, believed. Two, it may be accepted as a penultimate stage on the mystical ladder leading to ontological unity, i.e. perfection. Or three, it may be viewed as the top rung of the ladder, itself the ultimate mystical experience when properly pursued. Some had a much more open attitude to when and how it could be performed. The Chishti order is again a very good example here. Sama sessions here were and are often held in public and around the shrines of important masters. Anyone can basically partake and take advantage of the music and the devotional poetry of the ritual and guide them at least a little bit towards God. Similarly, it was argued that sama or music was not just a step on the way, but could actually be the catalyst and main part of the highest forms of mystical development, the very purpose and goal of the path of union with God. Quote, for them, music was both the ontological and the epistemological sin qua non of Islamic mysticism. It not only helped the lover to attain a state of ecstasy in the presence of the beloved, but it itself was integral to the ecstatic moment. If you go to India or Pakistan, Sufi music can easily be heard in the form of Qawwali singing near the shrines of different masters from the Chishti order, for example, like Nizamuddin Awliya, Mu'inuddin Chishti, or Amir Khusro, the latter of which... You know, his poetry is so popular that the, the words that you're hearing these Sufis sing is most likely his own words from his poetry. The world of Sufi music and its diversity is a fascinating thing. Wherever you travel in the Islamic world, you can find different variants and expressions of this deep tradition. Whether you are in Morocco, in Turkey, in, in Iran, in India, or in Sudan... All these different regions and cultures have their own spin on this practice, but as we said earlier, it always has the same function of being an aid on the spiritual path towards intimacy with God. And this very deep tradition of Sufi music has been very significant not only for the development of Sufi music in itself and for the practices of the Sufis, but also for the development of music in general in the Islamic world.
Especially from the later Middle Ages, when Sufism became mainstream and into the modern period, Sufi composers were integral to the development of various strands of Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Indian music. In the Ottoman Empire, for example, the Mevlevi order of Rumi received great support from the sultans and were often close with the court. The masters and composers of the Mevlevi order were often also composers of secular court music and the two genres greatly influenced each other. Some of the most noteworthy and form-giving compositions of the Ottoman and Turkish repertoire come from Sufi composers from the Mevlevi and Celveti orders. Similarly, in places like North Africa, we see how Sufi music becomes very important for this scene. Music that was composed and performed were often based on poems by great Sufi personalities. And the situation today is quite fascinating as well. As you might know, Sufism is not as widespread or popular as it was earlier in history, and this means also that Sama practices aren't as prevalent as they used to be, but Sufi music still is of course very strong in many ways and it has developed into new forms and taken new avenues of, of expression. Remember what we said in the beginning, we're defining Sufi music more broadly here as not just including the more ritualized, practice-oriented forms of this tradition. The more traditional forms of Sufi Sama sessions exist today Still, of course, the Chishti Sufis will still, still sing Khawali music at the shrines of the great masters. The Mevlevi order still has their whirling dervishes, both as a legitimate spiritual practice, but also even as a kind of tourist attraction, as I'm sure many of you have seen. If you visit a place like Morocco, you can still find Sufi groups who gather for sessions of both dhikr and sama, some in private, but others also in public, like, for example, in the very characteristic and colorful performances of the Isawiya Sufi order. In Sudan, followers of the Qadri order can be seen performing a unique kind of dhikr, or could argue a kind of sama involving dancing, and in Egypt there are huge gatherings for different Mawlid celebrations where Sufi saints are celebrated. Great traditions like the Mawlid of the Egyptian Sufi saint Ahmed al-Badawi will involve huge gatherings of people engaged in ecstatic audition to poems being sung with complex musical accompaniment with modern equipment. So clearly, Sama in its more traditional form is still alive and well and continues to develop and evolve. But Sufi music is more broad than this as well. And in the last few decades especially, we have seen an increase in what we could call a more um, commercialized form of Sufi music. I have already mentioned Nusrat Fatili Khan, who did figure in a traditional Kowali environment most of the time, but also recorded those traditional songs on albums and at musical festivals, sort of straddling the line between the modern and the traditional. He made Kowali, thus Central Asian Sufi music, popular to a worldwide audience, and this is still carried forward by artists like Abida Praveen, but others are seemingly completely divorced from its ritualized aspects, performing what we could call art music, but which still figures within a Sufi framework because of the themes involved. The Senegalese singer Yusundur, who is from a country where Sufism is especially widespread, released an album called Santa Yalla in 2004, which was released as Egypt internationally, that is essentially traditionally infused pop music, but with lyrical themes exclusively about Sufism and the important figures of the Muridiya and Tijaniya Sufi orders. This is quite a common thing in the pop music scene in West Africa, with artists like Baba Mal also incorporating Sufi themes in his lyrics. 
And in West Africa, there is a strong tradition of griot singers, which are singers who will sing devotional songs to various Sufi sheikhs and marabouts, or just important uh, leaders or figures generally, a tradition that I've had the privilege of experiencing firsthand. In Iran, one is really and understandably proud of the great tradition of Persian Sufi poets, and there is a flourishing musical scene there which often explicitly references this tradition. Singers like Shaharam Nazari and the recently passed Mohammad Reza Shajarian have become celebrated artists around the world while singing songs based on the poetry of Rumi, Hafiz, and many others, and with music that is heavily rooted in the traditions of Sufism. Even more recently, the British-based artist and composer Sami Yusuf has done some really amazing work to gather, interpret, and perform classic Sufi poetry and music from different cultures and regions in an accessible way through ambitious concerts and recordings. Add to this the many experimentations and the appearance of genres like Sufi rock and Sufi trance, which, while perhaps staying true to their traditional connection with ecstatic states, does not feature things like Sufi poetry a lot of the time and more kind of figures within a general vibe, a Sufi vibe, or featuring uh, Sufi-associated instrumentation, for example. As you can tell then, Sufi music, in a general sense, has spread into various different contexts, genres, and regions of the world, and people really love this stuff. There are festivals arranged, like the Fez Festival of World Sacred Music, which is often heavily focused on the Sufi tradition in particular, and other such developments which show that whether in its traditional ritualized form or not, Sufi music is certainly here to stay. The incredibly colorful stories about the effects of music and sama on its practitioners indicate the incredible power that it has to affect the human being. But why did it have this effect? How did and do the Sufis view music and its role in a more, from a, from a metaphysical, cosmological, perhaps psychological perspective? This is another treasure trove of fascinating stuff to explore. The power of music was realized basically universally, both by its supporters and detractors. We see how many of the early Islamic philosophers wrote many works on music and often connected it to various cosmological and metaphysical ideas. Thinkers like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, and Ibn Sina loved music. They realized the medical and therapeutic use of music and often employed it as treatment for various physical and mental ailments, a point often pointed out by the Sufi writers to argue for its permissibility and use. Music is harmony and is strongly connected to mathematics and the spheres of the heavens, according to these philosophers. There's a great section in the epistle of the Ikhwan safa the Brethren of Purity, who write that, quote, You should know, dear brother, may God aid you and us with the spirit of his, that in every manual craft the matter, or hayula, dealt with consists of naturally occurring material, and that all its products are physical forms. The exception is music, for the matter it deals with consists entirely of spiritual substances, namely, the souls of those who listen to it. The musician is he or she who shapes and works with the souls of other human beings and animals. They also write, quote, The tones produced by the movements of the musician reminds the individual souls that are in the world of generation and corruption of the joy of the world of the celestial spheres, 
just as the tones produced by the movements of the celestial spheres and the heavenly bodies remind the souls that are there of the joy of the world of spirits. In other words, the harmony and beauty of music reminds the soul of the harmony and beauty of the celestial world and the divine realm. And many Sufis would echo similar sentiments. In the Risala of Qushayri, which we have already quoted previously, he retells a story. Quote, I heard Al-Junaid say when someone asked him, why is a man usually quiet but becomes agitated when he hears music? He, Junaid, answered, God Most High addressed disembodied human souls during the primordial act, saying, Am I not your Lord? They answered, Yes, we testify, and the spirits of human beings fully absorb the sound of these words, so whenever they listen to music, the remembrance of that original act of hearing agitates them. Here, Junaid is connecting the listening to and effects of music with Quranic principles. The primordial covenant when God creates the world and asks, Am I not your Lord? becomes the original music of our spiritual origin. And any time we hear beautiful music in the sensible world, we are reminded of this original foundation. This idea of music as remembrance, a form of vikr, becomes a recurring theme. In Rumi's masterwork of poetry, the Masnavi, he opens the entire thing with the poem that has become known as the Song of the Reed. Listen to the reed and the tale it tells, how it sings of separation. Ever since they cut me from the reed bed, my wail has caused men and women to weep. I want a heart that is torn open with longing, so that I might share the pain of this love. Whoever has been parted from his source longs to return to that state of union. These are just the opening lines, but it already indicates the meaning. Rumi is talking about the wailing or sound of the reed flute, the ney, which has been an important instrument and symbol in Sufi music, and how this sad yet beautiful sound is a metaphor for the longing of the human soul to return to its source in God. When the person hears the melodies of the ney, that melody mirrors the longing of the soul and pushes it towards its desire for union. There is also a great story involving Ali ibn Abi Talib. This story tells of how the Prophet Muhammad once told Ali the most exalted and deepest secrets of reality in confidence and made Ali promise to never tell another person this secret. Ali was true to his word, but this secret was so amazing that he could not contain himself. He just couldn't keep it inside. So he went in secret to a little lake and whispered the secret into the reed bed, which absorbed it into its own being. So, when we hear the beautiful music of the ney, the reed flute, we are in some way hearing that secret that the Prophet told Ali. I just love this story. And the sound of the instrument also becomes a metaphor for another aspect of the human condition and the relationship between God and creation. Just as the ney requires the player to blow into it to give it life, and the drum requires a hand that caresses it or a lute needs fingers that pluck it, so human beings, or anything in creation, is constantly given life by the breath of God. We are the sounds and instruments played by God. If we want to find poetic utterances about sama and music and its symbolic metaphysical function, there is a lot of stuff to draw from. We already saw the earlier examples from Ibn al-Farid and al-Shushtari, and Rumi is an especially great point of reference. In another poem, he writes, quote, the wise men tell us that we take these tunes from the turning of celestial spheres. These sounds are revolutions of the skies that man composes with his lyre and throat. We all were parts of Adam at one time, 
In paradise we all have heard these tunes. Though clay and water fill us up with doubts, we still remember something of those songs. And so, like food, Sama sustains God's lovers within its harmonies. The mind's composed imagination draws its inspiration, takes its shape within this hue and cry. The huge importance and love Rumi shows towards Sama is apparent not only in the poetry itself, but in the practice of Sama as it developed in the Meblevi order, characterized by the whirling motion that he was taught by Shamsa Tabrizi, and the above poem mentions how the music and movement of the whirling dervish mirrors the turning of the heavens and the spheres. In many of these poems and descriptions, music becomes an essential component of reality and creation. Rumi, again, here provides one of the most beautiful visions of reality and creation I can think of. Much like Junaid, he views the originating moment when God asks, Alastobi Rabbikum, am I not your Lord, as essentially a musical one. These words are a musical sound, a melody, to which non-being responds by beginning to dance to whirl, and from this dance is created all of the universe. Every atom, every galaxy, every flower and animal, all of them come to be and move in a constant dance to the melody of the divine creative music. It's absolutely breathtaking imagery. And here, the earthly sama or music becomes a microversion of the most essential movements of the universe itself, a mirroring of the divine order. In The Greatest Sheikh, the Andalusian Ibn Arabi, we get a similar idea. He conceives of the creation and continues maintaining of the world as a relationship of speaking and hearing or listening. The originating command, kun, or be, is a kind of sound or speech, a nonsensible one of course, to which creation responds by listening. He refers to this as as-sama al-mutlaq, absolute sama and he sees it as an essential part of how reality works. This sama isn't musical, as in the case of Rumi, but sensible music can be seen as a part or mode of this wider absolute listening. And Ibn Arabi, in general, is very important for our next point or perspective on these spiritual and metaphysical aspects of music. As we saw earlier, he himself was very much hostile to the practice, but his wider ideas provide us and other mystics with a perfect mystical foundation to build on. The main philosophical or theological position that Ibn Arabi and his followers are associated with is the doctrine of Wahdat al-Wujud, or the unity or oneness of being. Ibn Arabi himself never used this term, but it became a very influential theoretical expression of Sufi metaphysics around the world after him. In the so-called unity of being, Ibn Arabi essentially argues that there is only one reality, reality itself, or al-Haq, which is God. God, or the One, is all there is, and everything, quote, other than God is simply non-being. Based on the Hadith Qudsi that states, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, so I created the world that I might be known, he sees all of creation as the continuous self-disclosure or manifestation of God's infinite attributes, like in a mirror. Everything we see, everything we experience, is a mirror showing a particular reflection of God's attributes, like the colors of the rainbow being an illusory diversity hiding the inner unity of the white light. Thus, there is nothing but God, according to Ibn Arabi, but God is also utterly transcendent and different from the world. The world is God and not God, huwa la huwa. 
All existence in itself is God, because God is being itself and there is only one being, and all multiplicity is a refraction or projection of his infinite oneness into a multiplicity that reflects him back at himself in a limited form. This is a very simplified explanation, and if you want to know more about Ibn Arabis and his doctrine, I suggest you watch my full video on that topic. What is important for us here is the idea that all things are reflections of God's attributes, so that there is, quote, nothing which is not an aspect of God, or in which God can be contemplated or experienced in an indirect form. When God is experienced, the mystic realizes that there is only one experiencer experiencing himself in a mirror, and duality then falls apart. As the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. Or, in Ibn Arabi's own words, quote, He is a mirror for your vision of yourself, and you are his mirror for his vision of the names or attributes, which are none other than himself and the manifestation of their determinations. But what does this have to do with music? Well, music is a thing that you experience, after all. And so, I think you can kind of see where I'm going with this. But let's go even deeper than that. When the very famous philosopher Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, wrote about beauty, what beauty itself is, he followed in the line of Aristotle. In his Risalat fil-Ishq, the treatise on love, he essentially defines beauty as that which is harmonious. Quote, both the rational and the animal soul, the latter by reason of its proximity to the former, invariably love what has beauty of order, composition, and harmony. As, for example, harmonious sounds, harmoniously blended tastes of well-prepared dishes, and such like. It recognizes that the closer a thing is to the first object of love, the more steadfast it is in its order, and the more beautiful in its harmony and that what follows it results therefrom, vis-a-vis -vis harmony and agreement. Whereas, on the contrary, the more remote a thing is from it, the nearer is it to multiplicity and such characteristics as follow it, contrast and disharmony. Beauty results from harmony, and harmony is associated with oneness, thus closer to God, whereas disharmony is multiplicity. And what is music if not harmony? Thus, we have found a theoretical foundation for why music is beautiful. Music is harmony, and thus music is beauty. But to thinkers like Ibn Arabi, there is only one beauty. God is the beautiful, not just in the sense that he has that quality, but in the sense that he is beauty, essentially. There is no beauty but him, just as there is no reality but him. All beauty or harmony that we experience in the world is but a tiny reflection of beauty itself, God. So now we have taken this as far as it can possibly go. Based on the ideas of Ibn Arabi and Wahdat al-Wujud, music is no longer just a reminder of higher realities or the human soul's origin in the divine womb, no longer is it just a beautiful metaphor for the creation of the world. Now, to experience the beauty of music in an act of sama is to experience God himself. It is to experience the absolute in itself. Not fully, of course, but a glimpse of the divine reality, and thus a glimpse into one's own most inner essence and identity. Try thinking of that next time you hear a good song. To finish off, it would be a disservice if we didn't also discuss the 20th century Sufi figure Inayat Khan, a master of the Chishti order from India and an accomplished musician himself. Inayat Khan was one of the first and most important Sufis to travel to the West and introduce the tradition here. 
He did so through lectures and musical concerts, and in those lectures he would often talk about the importance of and exalted nature of music and sound. There was even a book based on those lectures and writings called The Mysticism of Sound and Music, which deals exclusively with this topic. In this book, Khan picks up on many of the ideas that had already been discussed by earlier Sufis, but also expanded the theoretical and cosmological significance of music. He also wasn't afraid to incorporate teachings on music from other religious traditions like Hinduism, universalist in scope as he was. He mirrors the theory based on the unity of being by saying, quote, Music is nothing less than the picture of the beloved. And based on earlier precedent, as well as more up-to-date scientific theories of his time, he argues that the whole world is essentially music. Quote, Music is the beginning and end of the universe. All actions and movements made in the visible and invisible world are musical, that is, they are made up of vibrations. Creation begins with the activity of consciousness, which may be called vibration, and every vibration starting its original source is the same, differing only in its tone and rhythm caused by a greater or lesser degree of force behind it. Inayat Khan argues that at its deepest level the universe is made up of vibration, and music and sound is after all just that, vibrations. So the universe is just a large elaborate musical composition, with harmony in the movements of the heavens and the way everything is intricately structured, rhythm in the way that we move, for example we can't walk without rhythm, and in the workings of things. Music is all around us, we can find rhythm in basically anything, and we can see harmony in every corner of the universe. Today, the scientific theory known as string theory is one of the most popular for explaining the most inner workings of the universe, in which everything is thought of as vibrating strings, like on a guitar. The ideas being put forth by Inayat Khan are not that far off from this. Quote, When we pay attention to nature's music, we find that everything on the earth contributes to its harmony. The trees joyously wave their branches in rhythm with the wind, the sound of the sea, the murmuring of the breeze, the whistling of the wind through the rocks, hills, and mountains, the flash of the lightning and the crash of the thunder, the harmony of the sun and the moon, the movements of the stars and planets, the blossoming of the flower, the fading of the leaf, the regular alternation of morning, noon, and night, all reveal to the seer the music of nature. So clearly there are many ways that one can view music from a theoretical perspective, and I've only gone through a few examples here. But important to remember is that the use of music and the sama sessions of the Sufis have historically primarily been a practical thing, right? So the purpose of these practices were to help the Sufi adept on the path towards intimacy with God, help him on the spiritual path, essentially. Theorizing about the metaphysics or cosmological role of music in reality or in the world was only of interest to a few select, very philosophically minded Sufis in history, but they can still inform, and they do inform, the more practically oriented Sufis and the way that they conceive of these practices from a more metaphysical perspective and can also, of course, inspire a lot of us today who have a similar kind of relationship to music, perhaps. 
This has obviously been a very long episode, but I hope you find this topic as interesting as I do. There is so much to cover, as is always the case, but really there is so much else to go through as well, so many things that I had to leave out. But hopefully now you can see how deep of a tradition Sufi music is, both in its traditional ritualized forms, but also in the more contemporary ways that it expresses itself in, in, in art music and in different genres and ways across the globe. It has not only been an important part of Sufism or Tasawwuf historically, but also a very valuable factor in the development of music in the Islamic world more generally, as well as in the artistic heritage of the world. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Kyla Tsinas. Kyla Tsinas. I'm Kyla Tsinas, and I have been training a global community of women since 2009 I've created a brand new podcast, Sweat Daily, to help you level up your life and reach your health and well-being goals. From fitness tips to food that fuels you, meditation to motivation, we've got you covered. Sweat Daily, the happiest, healthiest, and most confident version of you awaits. Available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com